KYW Original Podcasts. This is the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm Flashpoint host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the focus is the American labor force. The economy is booming, but... It's not working for most of the American people. We look at wages. Nowhere near enough money to make rent. Employers continue to hold wages down. Is there a new labor movement on the horizon? And could 2020 make a difference? We dig in. She's one of four freshman congresswomen from Pennsylvania, and she's on the powerful Judiciary Committee. We are now doing oversight to inform us whether or not we should draft articles of impeachment. Why Madeline Dean is headed back to Capitol Hill a week early. All of this and more. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is the U.S. labor force. The unemployment rate stands at 3.7% lower than it's been in decades. But as the economy booms, a large percentage of Americans are broke as wages for most workers remain stagnant. Union numbers are at an all-time low and worker conditions are worsening. But there is a movement brewing. So this week for Labor Day, we look behind the statistics to see how our wage workers are faring. With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is John Dodds. He's director of the Philadelphia Unemployment Project. We also have Dr. Lynn Anderson. She's a professor at Temple's Fox School of Business. And finally, we have Emily Ginlisberger. She's author of On the Clock. She worked different jobs across the country to research the workplace. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, Dr. Anderson, where does it stand for the American worker? The economy is booming for the top 10 percent, even more so for the top 1 percent, and even more more so for the top 0.01 and 0.001 percent. For the rest of us, the bottom 90 percent, pretty much flatlining at this point. We're not feeling the effects from all the economic statistics I've seen. It's been interesting to watch the Democratic presidential hopefuls come out and try to talk about how they see the economy. We're always hearing this good news, Mm -hmm. all the great indicators. But when people really dig into the reality of the economy, it's not working for most of the American people. And when you say not working, what does that mean? People's wages are not rising nearly. They're they're pretty flat in the last 35 years since, since neoliberal capitalism has begun. Um, while the wages of the top, the the ownership class, have increased significantly. And even as U.S. productivity increases, American workers aren't taking home any wages that would indicate that productivity increase. And so, John, I know you've been on the front lines of this, you know, fighting for wages. What has it been like for American workers, and what are the wages looking like as to what they should be? About 78% of American workers are living paycheck to paycheck. They're not able to save enough money to put anything into retirement. 40% are not doing well at all. It's tough times right now. Wages are not up. Wages should be much higher, and yet employers continue to hold wages down. Particularly people without college degrees are very difficult making money. It's been tough. We're looking at a lot of people that are struggling. The minimum wage hasn't been raised in 10 years, 11 years now in the state of Pennsylvania. Things are not good for working people. Sort of the average person is not doing so well. Emily, you travel the country. You, you are, you're a journalist turned, you know, j- just had this idea, travel. What is it like? You, first of all, tell us some of the jobs you worked and what it was like doing that. Well, I worked three jobs for the book. Uh, the first one was in an Amazon warehouse in southern Indiana, 
The second one was in a uh, really big call center in western North Carolina, and the third one was in a McDonald's in downtown San Francisco. And one of the things that, even though these jobs were all very different in the stress that it puts on people, uh, what was common to them all was chronic stress, uh, mental and physical. In Amazon, I was walking between 13 and 16 miles every day as a picker. The mental stress of being constantly screamed at in the call center what really gets to you to the point where, like, Multiple people during the five weeks that I was there had, in my, just in my 20-person training class, had panic attacks that required an ambulance. And the McDonald's, like, we were sort of underscheduled to the point where there was always a line. There was never not a line. And that really gets to you both in the sense that, you know, it's constantly exhausting, but also people get angry if they have to wait in lines for that long. And I personally got uh, food thrown at me and – Ask any fast food worker, they are probably likely to tell you they've had that. That's kind of not that out of the ordinary. Everybody's like, oh my God. No, this you is know? why I wanted to write this book because there is such a unbridged divide between the understanding of certain terms that we use in the conversation about work, such as like what good, what a good job is, what stress is, what good benefits are. And they mean completely different things to depending on whether you have a decent job or not. And so I'm trying to sort of write this book to bridge that gap and give both like wealthier people the opportunity to see what it is actually like, the experience of working these jobs. Uh, Dr. Anderson, there's a big gap. So you got the people who making all the money, and then you got folks like Emily who were working on the front lines under all the stress for very low wages, as John mentioned. How did this gap, it didn't, was it always like this? It seemed like... The, the gap, you know, between the have and the have nots has grown exponentially in the past 20 or 30 years or so. Since the emergence of capitalism, we've had capital versus labor, owners versus workers. Right. But, um, you know, there was this period and it's, it wasn't such a perfect, blissful period in America in terms of race and diversity and ethnicity and other things. But there was that period post the New Deal from the 1930s to the 1970s where we had high tax rates on corporations, high tax rates on wealth, um, high tax rates on wealthy individuals. Um, There was much greater equality. We had strong labor unions advocating for workers, and most workers at the time did participate in labor unions. So it really, as Thomas Piketty, the French economist, says in his book Capital in the 21st Century, he said it was sort of a magical time where we reined in capitalism for like 30 years, a little bit. And his whole book, his whole... um, very beautifully written book just basically says capitalism is always going to be the great unequalizer. Mm. Unless it's reined in by really interesting and good public policy, it's always going to lead to vast inequality. And we've unleashed it in the last 30 years. We had a shift where uh, instead of the American worker, there was a focus on shareholders. There was a focus on making money. And John, how did that impact American workers? I I think what really happened, and really happened in Philadelphia particularly, is we had a very heavily unionized industrial base mm. in the city. And a lot of people that just you know, graduated from high school or didn't even graduate from high school got a good job, could raise their families. The uh, companies realized that and they decided to start moving out. And they totally deindustrialized Philadelphia and the whole, all the northern and midwestern cities. And they moved the work first to the south. And then they moved to Mexico and China and Vietnam and so forth. First, it broke the unions. So all those strong unions, many of them are barely alive now. And it, you know, it also left us with, with the kind of jobs that we have now, which are the service sector jobs. 
So it really changed the whole dynamic and really forced people from a decent middle-class lifestyle down to sort of this, you know, $9 an hour, you know, working two jobs sort of situation. Right now, there's only uh, 10% of the workforce is unionized, and they're not able to keep wages up. So even though there's a shortage of labor, the wages aren't going up. The yeah. power of workers has been broken, and the companies are, are running rampant. And so, and then, Emily, you went in here, you talk about the stress, but what was the pay like for these jobs, and what did it even begin to compensate? Not for me. But especially in the rural areas where I was working, but when I was making ten fifty an hour, like plenty of coworkers thought that that was a completely that was a good wage and they had good benefits. And it is like one of my coworkers drove an hour each way to the Amazon warehouse because ten fifty an hour was much more than she could do doing farm work or doing like working at a gas station or a pizza place. Convergis was. $9.50 an hour. Mm-hmm. And in San Francisco, I was at 14 at McDonald's because they were on their way up through the um, the scale. They had raised their minimum wage to 15 and it was a gradual raise. So it was at 14, still nowhere near enough money to make rent. I lived about 45 minutes outside uh, away from work. And most of my co and that was just because I got, I looked into a free room and most of my coworkers lived much further out than that, which is because that was what they could afford on $14 an hour or like around there. So and I've seen in a lot of cities where you have the people who do the service jobs have to catch buses, commuter trains in order to do those jobs that pay, that don't pay enough money for you to actually live in the city in which you work. Yeah. And that's sort of another sort of under uh, observed cost, I think, to people's lives. If you do not make enough money to live even relatively close to where you work, you lose two hours out of every day, two hours that usually would have gone to maybe sleep, free time, all these things. Like raising people your are, kids. Yeah, yeah, raising your kids. Like people don't have time to do those things anymore. And yeah, we just are not very good at quantifying what is actually important to people right now. And I think that's why all these statistics show that things are doing great. Whereas I think if you just look around, yeah. everybody's kind of miserable. We have heard the term corporate responsibility. Yeah. We've seen these new statements by corporations that they're now going to care about the worker. What? What? First of all, what is that statement, and do you believe it? 181 CEOs of our major cor- companies in the United States this week on Monday announced that they'd all signed this pledge that they realized they suddenly realized that corporations need to look out for a multitude of their stakeholders rather than just their shareholders. I wish you could see me like rolling my eyes right uh, now. I see Emily, I see John, everybody's rolling their eyes and oh. I can't blame you. But right away, a lot of pundits, a lot of media analysts said, well, show me something. And right away, you know, what those 181 CEOs could do right away is they could change legislation in the United States. They could use the money that they use for lobbying. They could use it to, to literally change corporate law and change the structure of a corporation. In fact, Elizabeth Warren has a bill out called the Accountable Capitalism Act. And in that bill, she has proposed that any corporation in the U.S. that makes over a billion a year has to be federally chartered. And in that charter, it mandates that you have to look out for all of your stakeholders, not just your shareholders, and that 40 percent of your board has to be employees. Now, why couldn't these 181 CEOs push for that law immediately to show us what, they, what they're saying? 
I don't know. We'll see what they do. It's, it's- the minimum wage. How many jobs do people work? And what's the reality uh, of this? And when you talk about these big corporations and, and how much they're paying. The reality is that the corporations have been fighting raising the minimum wage all through history. And uh, they've done a very good job. They won't even take it up in Harrisburg. They don't even take it up in Washington. People are fed up. And I think people want to change. And I think these CEOs are worried that there's going to be some significant change. And they're trying to get out there and do some minimal thing to head it off. Warren and Sanders, people like that, are really talking about taking this on. And I think a lot of people are going to join with them in that. So these guys don't want to be, you know, they don't want to be in the end of the train. They want to try to head it off. And that's what we're seeing. And so how much do people make at the minimum wage level and versus, I mean, where they should be making if you were to raise the minimum wage? Well, it's. Minimum wage is seven and a quarter, but you know, which is <laughs> such an incredible thing. And it, every state surrounding Pennsylvania has already raised it. Many states are at fifteen dollars an hour. That's still not a princely sum, but it, you know, it should be somewhere in that in that area. And yet, we cannot. We've been eleven years. We even haven't even had a vote in Harrisburg on raising the minimum wage. They absolutely refuse to bring it up, and the reason is because eighty percent of the population wants to have it raised, and the politicians don't want to vote no on it so they just make sure it never comes up because they will never vote against it they just won't vote at all that's the best trick there is a difference between wage workers and salary workers i'd say the biggest difference is just generally dignity at least when i was working as a journalist i had the option as long as i was getting my work done i had a lot of freedom i was not sort of constantly penned in by technology which is another thing that i found to be very common in uh, all three of the jobs that I worked and in complaints about other people's jobs in similar industries. Because, again, none – these three companies are not the problem. They're just – they're very good at working within the system that we have set up right now, which is the real problem. For example, when I was at Amazon, uh, I had this scanner. You'd walk around with it. And I, I'm sure people have heard stories about Amazon warehouses, about people peeing in bottles or that sort of thing. So that is the interesting part. There is no rule at Amazon that says that you cannot go to the bathroom. And they make it really clear at orientation. Like, you can go to the bathroom anytime you want. The thing is that your scanner is holding you to this sort of uh, productivity level. It's called rate. And if you are not picking as many items per hour, like, for me, it was usually between, like, 90 and 100. And that was kind of low because I was new. Uh, So if you're not keeping up with that, the scanner – it will let you know. And if you don't keep up with it for long enough, then someone, some human manager will come out and find you out in the stacks and let you know that you are not going fast enough. And if you do it enough times, you are going to get fired. People pee in bottles because they don't want their rate to go down. So Amazon sort of gets it. It can. It's sort of having its cake and eating it too. It's sort of allowing people to go to the bathroom, but all the incentives of the job dissuade them from actually using that freedom. Professor, I remember covering covering Occupy Wall Street. Did corporate America hear them? Occupy Wall Street was great, but it did fizzle and fade in some ways. Um, I think a lot of us got complacent. We were, we were hopeful in that we had a Democratic president who was promising us certain things under President Obama. It seemed like he was pulling us and his policies were pulling us out of the recession somewhat. But meanwhile, we weren't seeing enough because obviously the fact that we voted in President Trump, people were still angry, hurting the global economy. The fact that you know these populist candidates like Bernie on the left and, and, and Donald Trump on the right held such appeal show that people are angry still. I wish it was still as concerted as Occupy, but I do think Occupy has morphed somewhat. I don't know if you know this, but um, one of the fastest growing political movements in the U.S. right now is the Democratic Socialists of America. 
They've gone from having 5,000 members in the United States to over 55,000 members in the last couple of years. And they've got a huge convention. A lot of Democratic Socialists have been elected into public office. In fact, several just got elected to Chicago City Council. Um, we've had a couple of Democratic Socialist candidates here. The Bernie's Revolution, also a lot of former occupiers are working on that right now as well. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple new magazines and think pieces have come out. So I think Occupy is still there, and it was a wonderful presence. But, you know, in some ways, I wish it could have stayed focused on Wall Street because Wall Street's still going wild. John, if I shift gears a little bit, there are other threats to the American worker, aren't there? You know, one of the threats is the debt that people are in. People are at the just record amounts of debt. And we're seeing it We're seeing it in Philadelphia where people that have debt, they're not being allowed to have their houses saved from foreclosure mm-hmm. until they pay off their debts. This is the latest policy that we're dealing with through the Pennsylvania Housing Finance Agency. That's sort of a minor, not a minor, but a small area that we're fighting on right now is saying you can't. Can't do that. Well, People bringing jobs to other countries. Well, that, yeah. Well, that's obvious that, that we've been. That's what we've seen is that the industry is all over in China and so forth. And uh, that's one of the certainly one of the threats that we've seen. The other, you know, one of the problems that we're looking at is also transportation is a diff, big problem right now. The jobs have moved from the city out to the suburbs. In, in 1970, 50 percent of the jobs in Delaware Valley were in the city of Philadelphia. Today, it's only 25%, and the rest of the jobs have moved out to the suburbs. Half the people in inner city Philadelphia don't have cars, can't get there. SEPTA is not getting them there, so they really can't get to the better-paying jobs in the suburbs. And they're, so they're sort of they're a captive audience of the, of the labor market in the city of Philadelphia, which depresses wages. Are workers sort of like helpless in a way? I mean, what, what can folks do to sort of lift themselves out of the situation where they're forced to be in the system. I don't think any individual can really do that much alone. What we really need mm-hmm. is real strong unions and uh, regulations on exactly how much stress people like companies are allowed to put on people. Uh, right now, I think stress is I think it's going to be the next cigarettes when it comes to like health crises. Sure. If you look at all of the sort of diseases of civilization that are prevalent mm-hmm. in first world countries, it's heart disease, it's strokes, it's obesity, it's, you know, depression, anxiety. All of these things are, like, very directly linked to chronic stress. And right now, it's kind of as if we're letting these companies just layer on chronic stress that's eventually going to kill people as if it has no cost. It's not only going to be at the lower levels. All this um, monitoring and surveillance and time counting, it's rising up the food chain. Yes. But lawyers right now, if you have any friends yes, that are law I firms, used to practice, yeah. You know, yeah, you probably know the billable yeah. hours now are down to the minutes. I mean, talk about always living your job. You never escape it. Would you say there, there are less protections for workers because fewer they're, you know, the unions are a lot weaker than they once were. Oh, yeah. How do we strengthen <laughs> that? We really do need to improve that having a labor movement that's stronger. And I think that's that's the key. Without that, without some kind of worker power, the corporations have way more power than the individuals. And people are desperate for work. They're, you know, they have to keep these jobs. And so I think some of the changes in the law have to make it easier for people to become unionized. And and you know, these right to work laws, they've got to go. Uh, you know, the way the companies hire labor labor busters and union busters to try to stop union drives, which is working very well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've only got 10 percent of the workforce in a union. In 1945, we had 35 percent. So it's it's dropped dramatically. 
And I think we need changes in the law to make it easier for people to unionize. And that will start backing them off. And that's how it was in that golden period of the 30s, 40s, 50s, yeah. and 60s. And I don't think it's going to get better unless we have a strong labor movement. And for people of color, it's even tougher in some instances because of of, a, of other layers, societal layers. But we're talking about all American workers because this is Flashpoint. We do have to wrap this up. So what is the next step? How do we like light the match that will take the American worker to the next step? There's over 250,000 more union members in 2019 than there were in 2018. Some unions are really growing. I'm actually heartened, and I think there are several at least of the huge field of 20 Democratic candidates who are really pushing this stuff. In fact, four of the Democratic candidates have unionized campaigns. So they're walking the top. 2020 is the next step, and I think we need to elect a president that's going to lead the people to take on these corporations and le- and try to fight for change. People are up in arms. They've got to be organized and they've got to – these CEOs are worried. That hopefully there's a reason for them to worry if people are going to take it on. Final word. This idea that companies and corporations are humans, they're driven by the, their bottom line. You know, you can't expect them to act the way humans are. You can't expect them to do the right thing. You have to hold them to it. And that is – what we got to do. The sooner everybody can realize that, the better. All right. Well, I want to say thank you to John Dodds. Thank you to Dr. Lynn Anderson. And thank you to Emily Ginlisberger for being on Flashpoint <laughs> and talking about this issue in the news. Yeah. <laughs> Next up, she's one of four freshman congresswomen from Pennsylvania. And she's headed back to Capitol Hill a week early. Are there impeachable offenses that we need to actually write up? Madeline Dean lays out the plan for the new House session. We'll be right back. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks all. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets residents in our region hot under the collar is a lack of of representation in our legislature. Well, less than a year ago, Pennsylvania had zero women in Congress. But in 2018, Commonwealth voters made history sending four women to Congress. Congresswoman Madeline Dean represents the newly created 4th Congressional District based in Montgomery County. And we are here in her Glenside office. Congresswoman, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So it's been a busy year or so for you. Um, And you are a freshman in what has been considered the bluest, most diverse with 40 women. How has it been? Phenomenal. Uh, I love that you point that out. This 116th Congress is the Mm -hmm. most diverse Congress ever with people coming from all walks of life. Not your normal politician uh, trail. Uh, many people coming from industry or medicine or veterans, uh, from business, you know, all kinds of folks, uh, or somebody like me that was uh, a state representative. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also very exciting to see the diversity with the number of women. Mm-hmm. Uh, with uh, we've, We have Muslim women. Uh, we have um, Native American women, LGBTQ people. Uh, and this is all within the Democratic caucus. Yes. I have to admit that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, it's very exciting to be in the majority. From the outside looking in, there's so much Twitter, Twitter you know, so much rhetoric going on. But what is it really like inside of the House? 
Well, and, and I try to make sure I don't feel like I'm in a bubble and, and make sure I stay connected mm-hmm. to my district. So it's been really useful to be back in district for several weeks this summer. To me, as a freshman, but somebody with experience and yeah, age, I'm yeah. not young, mm-hmm. it feels extremely good and extremely powerful and positive. Of course, we are up against uh, many brick walls, but we talked about the fact that we are a majority for the first time. Democrats mm-hmm. are in the majority. Mm-hmm. And that has made a difference. Women being in this has made a difference. It's made a difference in the conversations we're having in caucus, and you see it in terms of the legislation that's been brought up. A lot of times the news can't cover it all, and I'm sympathetic because there's just so much flashing every single day and tweets of the day or scandals of the day. But what I try to tell my constituents is take a look at what we've done in the House. We have passed powerful legislation. We've had important hearings. I'll give you a small example. Mm -hmm. Uh, I really wanted to be on the Judiciary Committee, and I'm on it. Yeah, Yeah. and and Chairman Nadler is a talented uh, lawyer. And a, and a talented congressman. Uh, but when I interviewed with him and talked with him and told him of my interest, uh, what really appealed to me was that he wanted to do substantive work as well as important oversight. Mm-hmm. And no one would trump the other, pardon yeah. the verb. And, and he's done that. What was the very first hearing he chose to have in our new majority in this new Congress? Gun violence. Mm. Congress has not had a hearing on gun violence in something like 10 years, even though we know we are suffering a scourge of gun violence. Mm -hmm. He chose that as his very first hearing. Uh, I chose for my very first bill to introduce something having to do with guns. We passed in February uh, two bills, two background check bills. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those were two bills in two days. The whole House passed, not just judiciary, whole House passed, sent to uh, the Senate. More than 26 years has gone by. Uh, since we passed gun legislation. Yeah. And there it sits. So there's so much going on. We have passed 200-plus substantive bills on good government, on fair pay, um, uh, reauthorization of VAWA, violence against women, so many good bills. Uh, And so real substantive work is going on as well as important oversight. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I think sometimes the news doesn't have the opportunity to focus Mm -hmm. on it. But it feels powerful and good, but I know we have a long way to go to get the Senate to take up this legislation. And that's what I was going to say. Is there any effort to kind of close the gap across the aisle? I think you're absolutely right. We have to bridge the gap. Mm -hmm. We have to work across the aisle. Uh, I actually got a bill passed uh, in the first six, seven months that we were there, and I did it purposefully with a Republican member. Another freshman, also from Pennsylvania, Guy Rushenthaler, he and I co-sponsored STOIC. It has to do with state grants uh, for police officers, for the departments for police officers, because there's a real increase in police officer suicide. Yes. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so these are uh, state grants to help uh, combat that. I wanted to do that in a bipartisan way. I just found out last week, unsolicited, that I am one of the most bipartisan members of this new Congress, um, Mm -hmm. somewhere fourth in the ranking in terms of seeking bipartisanship and signing on to bills uh, by both sides of the aisle. Uh, But to that other point, getting across to the other chamber, what's it feel like? It's discouraging. and and we see that, for example, life-saving legislation, like the background check bill, doesn't go anywhere. I purposely thought a meeting with uh, our senator, Senator Toomey, on this issue. I got the meeting, but unfortunately, he didn't believe our bills would go anywhere. And I think that's a failure. It's a partisan divide. It's a, it's a chamber divide. Uh, at a time when 97% of Americans believe we need to do something on gun violence to yeah. curb you know, the 40,000 people a year who die of gun violence. And I do want to mention, uh, I think since Sandy Hook, you've been a proponent of dealing with the issue of gun violence yeah. um, 
co-chaired a committee here in Pennsylvania. Um, you're on the gun violence task force now. That's right. What more can we do? I know background checks, they've been languishing this bill, but what can legislators do to really deal with this? Because, you know, literally people are dying. That's right. Yeah. And really the numbers are staggering. Uh, I used to talk about 33,000 people a year dying. That number jumped to Mm. 40,000 people Mm -hmm. uh, in 2017. Literally another more than 100,000 people were wounded, caught in the crossfire. Yeah. That's children. It's babies. It's children. It's old people. It's young people. It's an incredible scourge. The other part of that that sometimes people don't understand is more than half that 40,000 number is gun violence suicide. So there's so much we could be doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it is homicide, some of it is accidents, some, and a great portion is suicide. There's a lot we can do to bridge the divide. Uh, and I have hope because sometimes people, and I come from the state legislature, mm-hmm. uh, where people said, oh, my gosh, this is Pennsylvania. You can't even talk guns. We can talk guns. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody like me, is interested in taking away someone's legal gun rights. Yes. But we know there are ways to curb gun violence. Uh, so one thing that we're doing very actively is the Judiciary Committee is coming back a week early. Jerry Nadler has called us back. We're going to be going in next Wednesday, and we're marking up three bills. One of them has to do with that red flag bill so mm-hmm. that you could go to a court, uh, a family member who's concerned about a, a, a person in crisis, Um, Law enforcement, a medical person could say, look, um, please, Your Honor, take a look. This person is in grave crisis. Make sure he or she does not have weapons in their possession. And would that be also applicable to those individuals having suicidal thoughts in addition to Very, very much. Yeah. 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 It's called um, extreme risk protection order, red flag bills. I actually Mm -hmm. introduced that in the Pennsylvania House a couple sessions back. Others have introduced it since. It makes real sense. Uh, We prohibit certain people from possessing or buying uh, weapons when we know they are a threat, whether they are a felon or they have a serious mental illness. But there's a whole gap of people. Uh, And one sad example of this is the Charleston shooter. Yeah. It was known he was in grave crisis. Mm -hmm. It was known by his friends. One of his friends even took the gun away from him a couple of days before that terrible shooting. Uh, But the friend was afraid for his own liability and gave the gun back. If we had these red flag laws, and states that do have them, uh, they're very effective to temporarily, not permanent taking, temporarily take the weapon out of that person's hands and possession uh, so that uh, their life can be saved and others can be saved. Another big issue that has made headlines is the Mueller report and the Mm -hmm. talk about potential impeachment. You've called for an impeachment inquiry. Correct. What does that mean to to regular folks? What were you calling for and where does that stand? Thanks for asking. And I, it, it, and I think also people worry that nothing's happening. Yeah. Uh, but things are moving, mm-hmm. uh, constitutionally moving, in, even in the face of tremendous obstruction by this administration. The administration is not interested in us doing our constitutional duty of oversight, whether it's on the Judiciary Committee. I also serve on the Financial Services Committee, and we have oversight responsibility there. And, of course, intelligence and, and uh, other Committees of jurisdiction have oversight responsibility. So what's going on? Uh, At the point when first Attorney General Barr failed to come before us for Mm -hmm. when we legally issued him a subpoena, he failed to come before us. Uh, And then um, we could anticipate that Don McGahn, who was due to come before us, would not come. The administration calling for a blanket immunity for themselves or anyone who ever worked with them. It's not a legal thing, but they claim it. Um, I said to myself, and I actually talked to my staff, and I said, what I'm going to 
I feel like I'm a person on the front line as a yeah. member of the Judiciary Committee. Mm-hmm. If McGahn fails to come before us, and if he too thwarts a legal subpoena issued by a co-equal branch of government, then I have to do something. So at that point, as soon as McGahn failed to come uh, and the administration blocked it, I said I am in favor of an impeachment inquiry. I don't know how many people were in, in on it at that point. Um, but that number has steadily risen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now it's over, I think, 130, somewhere in that range. Uh, and so that's been steadily growing over the course of this summer, even when we were not there. Um, and what does that mean? Okay. People hear those terms as regular folk. An inquiry, does that mean that this is going to be the impeachment hearing of some sort, that this could end in a way, there's going to be votes? What does an inquiry mean? Well, and I appreciate that. And there's confusion. Is it an inquiry? Is it an investigation? Mm -hmm. And so to my, I'm going to simplify this because I don't claim to be a scholar on this, but from going from oversight to calling it impeachment inquiry or impeachment investigation, and that's literally what Jerry Nadler, our chairman, has called Mm -hmm. it. And we've used that exact expression in our court filings. It signals to, I hope, our committee... Yeah. to the administration, to the American public, and to the courts, that we are not just doing broad, undirected oversight. We are now doing oversight to inform us whether or not we should draft articles of impeachment. So it's a much more direct. It also creates an urgency, and, and the courts have understood that. So in our filings, trying to enforce these subpoenas, we have said, and the, the uh, speaker is well aware of it, mm-hmm. and our legal counsel for the caucus uh, approved it and, of course, drafted it, that we are now in an impeachment investigation that the Judiciary Committee is um, a part of right now. So it's not this vague, well, we're doing oversight to see if there's any inappropriateness, any wrongdoing. We're taking a look. Are there impeachable offenses that we need to actually write up? How do you think that would affect 2020? There are the political considerations and there are constitutional, mm-hmm. I think ethical, kind of moral considerations, constitutional considerations most importantly. There are people smarter than I that can game out the political portion of it. Mm-hmm. I feel an obligation, a constitutional obligation, to make sure that we call out document for the American people the wrongdoing of this administration. Mm-hmm. The administration is involved in corruption and wrongdoing, some in plain sight. The Mueller report revealed a lot not in plain sight, mm-hmm. uh, but now is in plain sight. Thank you uh, to the Mueller team for doing that extraordinary work. Um, and I feel an obligation to move forward. Some people have made the calculation that, oh, we should just probably not do it because it might derail uh, electoral hopes yeah. for next time around. I, I don't think you can have a constitutional system of government and say this wrongdoing looks to be so big and so monstrous uh, that we don't want to give an electoral win um, because of firing up a base. I feel like we have an obligation to make sure that we track down wrongdoing, call it out, uh, and hold the administration, directly hold the president accountable Mm -hmm. to the American people. Uh, Some people are frustrated. Why haven't you already done it? Why haven't you filed articles of impeachment? Why haven't you voted on it? It really is an extraordinarily high bar yeah. to bring impeachment. It's a serious thing. I, I, I don't take it lightly. It's not something that you just throw out there. Um, but you, it, as, as lawyers, yes. you have to build the case. And mm-hmm. the case is the, the court is the court of public opinion. Mm-hmm. Even though it's going to take place in a House and in a Senate, if it should happen, it's the court of public opinion that's going to matter more than anything. And you seem to have been not, you didn't just jump on the bandwagon. It seemed right. like you took time 
to kind of evaluate the situation, look at the Mueller report, yes. wait for the testimony to come through before you really started pushing for this this inquiry. Yeah. Why did you decide? Because a lot of people just came in, you know, got elected and said, boom, this is what I'm going to do. Right. You, But you took time. Why were you... Why did you take that time? The two things I was waiting for was, A, to see the Mueller report and read it, and to see for myself, even in the redacted version, is there serious wrongdoing in here? And the answer is yes. Extraordinary wrongdoing on the part of Russia. Extraordinary collaboration, even if they didn't find criminal behavior. A hundred plus contacts with the Trump administration and the uh, Trump, excuse me, campaign And the Trump campaign never once raised their hand and said, this doesn't feel right. Maybe we should let the FBI know that Russia is trying to help us win an election and trying to interfere uh, in illegal ways, uh, in, in hidden ways with this election. And then volume two of the Mueller report, the Trump administration, Mr. Trump himself, once he recognized he was under investigation by the special counsel, within days, calls upon Don McGahn or Corey Lewandowski, go fire Sessions, tell Sessions to go say something flowery about me, um, see if you can um, curb uh, the, the, um, the horizon of yeah. the special counsel investigation to future behaviors. Uh, you know, telling people, offering people uh, friendship, pardon, you're still in my favor. Um, remember that. Uh, it's incredible wrongdoing, uh, uh, obstruction uh, mm-hmm. by a president who was extremely fearful for what was going to be found. Yeah. And how is your, how's this district, their fourth district, uh, been, what has been the reaction uh, from your constituents on this issue? And, and is this kind of what they want as well? This fourth district is a very cool district, I have to tell you that. <laughs> it's 97% of Montgomery County, the place I was born and raised, mm-hmm. and then a piece of Berks County on our western front. It's a diverse district. I, I think it's a really thoughtful, engaged district. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so some of the things that sort of tipped me off, uh, I'll give you sort of anecdotally, literally going to my local barbershop. Uh, multiple times that I have been in there, uh, person after person, and they will come up and say, Mad, you know I'm a Republican, but you must do something about this wrongdoing. You must impeach. Yeah. Uh, uh, Democrats, of course, say that too. Some people say, look, I'm actually an independent, but this has got to stop. Uh, not everybody in this district thinks impeachment is yeah. the right thing to do. I think some also, uh, I literally was at an event a couple nights ago, and a woman uh, said, I just worry about impeachment for the political uh, fallout. Yeah. Um, that it will stir up a base and actually reward the president with, with a re-election. As I said, I try not to make those political calculations. I try to listen very closely to my constituents, and then I take my constitutional obligation uh, that I swore an oath to, yeah. uh, uh, to do the proper oversight and put the facts before the American people. Put the facts. Let the American people hear what's going on. So what are the local issues that you're very focused on when you're in Congress or that you'll be focused on this next session? Well, and and I always try to pivot back to those. When I knocked on doors running for this election, and I was not alone. This was true across the country. Uh, Healthcare was the number one. Mm. Bread and butter across the kitchen table 
issue or across the transom thing that people wanted to talk to me about at the doors. And so I've been pleased to be a part of legislation um, to try to make sure that prescription drugs um, yeah. are affordable, um, make health care more accessible. Mm-hmm. The other thing that people talk about is the, that they're very pleased that we have the ACA, but still there's a whole population of people that are either uninsured or can't afford the premiums on the exchange. Mm-hmm. We have to deal with that gap. Number two, I think, is gun violence, yeah. um, very much. The environment is very important mm-hmm. across this district in, in very broad ways, but in some very grievous ways in terms of water contamination. Yeah, that's uh, been big all over the country right now. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have Willow Grove Naval Air Base uh, mm-hmm. in our district. Uh, and so what has been learned over the course of the last half a dozen years is that the contamination called PFAS, PFOA, uh, the chemical compound that was in firefighting foam, is still in some firefighting foams, that was used for decades mm-hmm. on that base. My brother worked there uh, after his service in the Navy. And so it's an incredibly powerful firefighting foam to put out, of course, gasoline fires, uh, air, airplane fires, those kinds of things. Um, but it has left a contamination yeah. that has leached into the ground, leaches continually into our um, groundwater and then into our drinking water. So PFAS contamination and the health effects connected to that uh, are critically important to this area. As we wrap it up, I want to ask you two questions. First, what keeps you up at night? Oh, the opioid crisis is one thing that wakes mm-hmm. me up. Um, we lost 70,000 people in 2017 to overdose. It's a staggering number. 100 and some people uh, a day. I I call it a jetliner a day. If we had a jetliner a day going down in this country, do you think we would start thinking immediately about emergency outside-the-box ways of stopping it? As you represent your hometown of Glenside. Yay, Glenside! (laughs) Have your office in in your hometown. Yes, it's the heart Um, of the civilized world. (laughs) (laughs) What are you excited about going into this next session? What am I excited about? Making a difference with this new majority. Um, continuing to pass good legislation, and then moving in and hopefully persuading the Senate um, to do the right thing. Thank you so much, Congresswoman Madeline Dean, for coming on Flashpoint and talking about these important issues in the news. It's a pleasure to be with you, Jerry. Next up, they're teaching bars how to stop sexual violence. How do you intervene in that space without it being aggressive? The woman behind Safe Bars Philly gives tips for intervention. We'll be right back. When we're out of time to give you the backstory, there's Scroll Down, the new podcast from KYW. Quality pre-K programs, not just ones that provide daycare. Cases is three years old now, but we have not forgotten. And at the very end, I gave her a hug. I was in tears, and she whispered in my ear, everything I told you, it was a thousand times worse. What you didn't hear on air from the KYW team ready to tell all. Search Scroll Down on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to check out the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. And we here at KYW, we are all about community. And one organization is working to ensure Philadelphia has a safe nightlife. They train bar employees on how to recognize and respond to problematic behavior all while promoting respect and support. Now, here to tell us more about Safe Bars Philly is Lakeisha Anthony. She's an education and training specialist at War Philadelphia Center Against Sexual Violence. Lakeisha, welcome back to Flashpoint. 
Thanks for having me, Sherry. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, you're super, super busy. I was very, very excited to hear about uh, Safe Bars Philly. For folks who've never heard about it, tell us what it is. So Safe Bars Philly is ultimately a prevention program where we go into bars, talk with their bar staff from the front house to the back of the house about how to intervene in order to prevent sexual assault from happening. Mm -hmm. And so give us some examples. So we're training them ultimately to spot specific aggressive behavior, Mm. um, to watch body language and things of that nature to show that this might be an unsafe situation where this person might actually be uncomfortable. And then how do you intervene in that space without it being aggressive? And in the process of that does not cause friction between the person who is stepping in and then also the person who might be the victim or the perpetrator in that moment. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times, you know, alcohol is involved. Yeah. 50 percent of sexual assaults involve alcohol. Mm -hmm. And what we learned is that alcohol does not cause sexual assault. The person who is actually perpetrating that particular crime calls it sexual assault. It's just alcohol is used as something to lower someone's inhibitions. And what we do is we put sexual violence on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. And if we can put it on a spectrum and we find the smaller things, which we believe that all of these things can be traumatic for anyone, no matter how small or big. But if we can stop it from happening on the lower end of the spectrum, then we can prevent it from happening on the higher end of the spectrum. Um, We just trained Love City Brewing, Mm -hmm. and that opened up a full conversation about how one of their staff members actually experienced um, something that really uh, made them feel not comfortable and how they opened up the dialogue to see that it's not just happening to your patrons, but it's also happening to the people that work in your environment as well. Yeah. And so how if you were to give me one or two tips on how to spot this, what would you say? So one, to pay attention to the body language. If Mm. someone is engaging with someone to know whether or not they are making eye contact, which is a big thing. Even if you think that that person is adjacent to the other person and they're in their face, like we might see people talking in the bar, but that person who is the victim is looking beyond somewhere else. They're probably looking for some type of help. Mm -hmm. And so how can someone like intervene? I mean, because people are nervous. People are afraid. It it can be simple. We train the three D's ultimately. And one of those is distraction. It could be something as simple as a distraction where you come in and say something small to that individual. And what we realize is that perpetrators do not want targets that are difficult. They want easy targets. So if someone is actually intervening in any way, then they're probably going to stop trying in that area and try in another. Yeah. And so you just saved that person potentially from uh, an evening that could escalate in a bad way. Yes. And ultimately, it's just raising protective factors. Like we're checking in if an event that two people are together or multiple people are together, we're making sure that they're not serving another person on the word of someone else. And yes, bars do that at times. We want to emphasize some of the things and practices that they're already doing and actually couple them with some of the tools that we can see as a rape crisis center that could actually prevent something from happening or stop it while it's on a low level. So how long is a training? It is a two hour training. So if a bar calls you up, they call up ward. And then what does that do for the bar? Some of the benefits are one, it helps their bottom line. Most people want to go to a place that feels safe or that is actually concerned about safety. Right. Also, what we do is we partner with those particular bars and we have events, happy hours, fundraisers, things like that. We also help them to ensure that they don't have cost in on the back end. Because if an event that an assault happens at their their establishment, that can be some bad press or some bad uh, reviews for them. And we want to help them 
through that process. Also, we do a package where they receive napkins and coasters and T-shirts, things like that, that says that this is a safe bar. They become certified by us. We have actually been endorsed by city council in reference to this particular initiative. And so you get to be labeled a safe bar. Yep. Yeah, and that's a big deal, especially in this environment when people are really trying to raise awareness about sexual violence. And I know you do that personally. You have an organization. You've been in the work for quite some time. Yeah, so sexual violence um, work is my life. It's something that I do regularly, and this is just an honor to be a part of this particular project for war. Like I said, war was one of the places um, in previous interviews that actually helped me to get where I am. I'm a survivor of sexual assault myself, so some of this work is personal, and I just want to make sure that my city is safer in the process. And by the way, Lakeisha Anthony was a KYW game changer. Yeah, game changer. <laughs> Got to throw that out there. You were a game changer and really changed the game when it comes to women, like giving women a voice, giving people who have survivors a voice. Yeah. And so are you trying to get more bars to sign up? How many folks? Because this just launched this year in Philly, but there's also stuff going on in other cities. So we're trying to get more bars to come in. We have a Safe Bars Advisory Committee made up of some nightlife individuals who work in the nightlife scene. So we have that. And then it's been word of mouth. Mm. What we found out is that a lot of bars that have already taken our training thought it was so beneficial that they told another neighboring bar that they liked or in their neighborhood. And so where are they? Who did they call? Did they call you? Who did they call? They actually can call me. Lakeisha at war.org is my email address. It's L-A-Q-U-I-S-H-A at war, W-O-A-R dot org. Or they can call our number at 215-985-3315, extension 179 is my extension. Wonderful. Do you guys have a website? It's war.org, W-O-A-R.org. It's actually a part of our Safer City initiative. So you will see more coming from war in reference to making our city safer. We're going into other avenues. We're not limited to bars, but we're taking into transportation in other areas as well. One organization, one business at a time. Exactly. Well, I want to say thank you so much to Lakeisha Anthony. She is the education and training specialist at War Philadelphia Center Against Sexual Violence. Thank you so much for being on Flashpoint. Thanks for having me. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As the late Franklin D. Roosevelt once said, the best customer to American industry is a well-paid worker. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.